Hypebeast Radio, I'm Jeff Staple, and this is The Business of Hype, a show about creative entrepreneurs, brand builders, innovators, and the realities behind the dreams they've built. This week's guest on the podcast hails from New York by way of Los Angeles and Canada. But her true home for her spirit, her soul, and her business is Africa. She first landed in Morocco in 2011, where she began relationships with local designers and artisans. It was the springboard to the foundation of her brand, Brother Veli's. The goal was at the same time simple to understand, but extremely difficult to pull off preserve the shoemaking craft for local indigenous communities while creating new jobs and opportunities for these artisans and their workshops. From Bali to South Africa to Kenya, she's expanded her vision worldwide. And today, she travels to Africa every two to three months to work on the ground to develop her collections. And now we have the honor of having her on the show to talk to us about the collaborations, the traditions, and the struggles that she faces. Everyone, please welcome founder and creative director of Brother Valley's Aurora James. So thanks for being in the studio with us. Of course, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Before we begin, if you can just, for those who don't know, give an introduction of who we have in the studio and what you do. Yeah, so my name is Aurora James. I'm the creative director and founder of an accessories brand called Brother Valleys that is made by different artisan groups across the world. Cool. <laughs> that uh, The second part of that description is what makes it unique because it's made by different artists all across the world, right? Yeah. So talk a little bit about that aspect of it. Well, you know, it was something that sort of happened naturally. I was traveling across Africa and I fell really in love with a pair of traditional South African shoes called Fellies or Felskoon or how we now call it Vellies, um, which is, it was just three pieces of leather essentially that were like wrapped together with a really basic sole put on it. And okay. um, when British people came South to Africa, they saw it and they were like, this is amazing. And they brought it back up and created a company called Clark's. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> the desert boot as we know it is a traditional South African shoe shape. Oh, so the Clark's Desert Boot mm -hmm. came from Africa. Exactly. The desert in Africa. You got it. Ah, <laughs> interesting. Yeah. I didn't know that. Okay. Yeah. Most people don't know that. So I was really, you know, surprised to learn about that and just visiting those workshops. They were all dying out because mm -hmm. no one really wanted to wear that locally anymore. They wanted to wear like whatever Kanye was wearing, you know? So I just thought that she was amazing. The way they made it was fantastic. It was so yeah. much better than like a generic you know, desert boot. Mm -hmm. um, so I started working with them. So what did you see in that? Did you see like a global appeal or did you see something that was just good for Africa, like the community? Um, like, did you see an opportunity right away? I was like, I just don't want this workshop to go out of business because what they're doing is great. Okay. That was it. And okay. I was like, okay, I feel like I could sell some of these to my friends because they're actually amazing and mm -hmm. I love wearing them. Mm -hmm. And I'm very picky about what I wear. So for me, I was like, mm, let's just try it. Okay. So I took a little bit of money and um, worked with them on like tweaking the shoe shape a little bit and the colors and uh, brought a 
big batch of them back to New York and sold them at the Hester Street Fair in the Lower East Side. Oh, cool. The good old Hester Street Fair. The good old Hester Street Fair. (laughs) (laughs) What what was your job at that time? Mm, I was a consultant. So I was doing a little bit of work for like a not-for-profit arts organization. I also did some like show production work with like Hood by Air and some casting stuff with Ralph Lauren. Like it was a, it was a mixed bag. Okay. And what were you doing in Africa? What brought you to Africa? I was just traveling. What country was this? This was South Africa. South Africa. Yeah. But the first place I ever went in Africa was Morocco. And then I went to Nigeria and then Namibia and then South Africa. On the same trip? No, different oh, trips. Okay. Okay, cool. <laughs> so you take like annual trips to Africa. It's just a phase. <laughs> I, I was living in LA before and then I came to New York and then I was like, oh, New York is just a lot. And so I was like, I need to travel to Africa. Because at that point, I mean, you know, it was like seven years ago. I actually didn't know that many people that just went to Africa mm-hmm. for a trip. Right. And I was like, I want to go. My father was born and raised in Ghana and I had never been to Africa. So I was like, oh, I, okay. Was the first trip like a family trip? No. The first trip was like with my boyfriend to Morocco. It was like a romantic trip. And Uh then I was like exploring the souks and just really thrown off by the fact that no one was really wearing traditional apparel. Yeah. Which was naive of me at the time, but I just assumed that everyone would be wearing like traditional clothing and they weren't. They were wearing like, you know, they were dressing like Cristiano Ronaldo. They're wearing like true religion. Uh (laughs) Uh-huh. Seriously. (laughs) Wow. That was like the style icon at that time over there, which was really disheartening. Right, totally. Because of what, you know, the heritage that they have, like it's a Yeah, shame. it's amazing. Yeah. But that's not really part of what their value system was over there at the time. Right. Okay, so after a couple trips, you wind up in South Africa. Mm-hmm. And then just talk me through how you even stumbled upon this workshop. This like... Well, I'm someone who likes to travel off the beaten path. Uh-huh. So I like, the first time I went to Morocco, I like rented a car from a guy that was just at the airport. Okay. So, and like drove across, you know, the country to get to the coast. Uh So I'm an explorer. Okay. And that's just always been in my tendency. Uh So I literally will just like walk into places and be like, what's going on here? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anything that I see interesting. Okay. I still do that. So you still literally stumbled upon Literally stumbled. Okay. And now it's like word of mouth, you know, people will bring me stuff. Um, We have a partnership with the United Nations. They're obviously really amazing at finding like workshop opportunities for us. Mm -hmm. Um, I found a workshop through the Clinton Foundation as well in Haiti. So now it's like a little bit different. Also, the scale of which we're producing has changed. Okay. Um, How many people were in the workshop when you stumbled upon it? That workshop? Maybe 10. Okay. And they knew what they were doing. Like, did you have to go in and like fix the infrastructure of it? No. Okay. I mean, to a degree, like fixing the infrastructure, the idea of fixing in general is like really difficult, you know, because what we think their infrastructure needs to be and what their infrastructure probably needs to be are going to be very different things. Mm -hmm. So I think for me, kind of understanding first and foremost that the ways that I think are good or right or proper need to be thrown out the window. Because Americans, when it comes to Africa, have done a lot of fixing. Yes. You know, we've done a lot of donating and all of that. And even when you look at Ethiopia, like 70% of their local manufacturing has been killed by American donated clothing. Hold on. So 70% of their native manufacturing has been yes. killed because we've donated. Exactly. So our donations have actually decimated an economy. 2,000%. Whoops. Exactly. No, it's bad. It's <laughs> like, shit. that's American fixing though, right? Yeah. That's how Americans fix things. So yeah. it's like, even with the Super Bowl, like they go into production with you know, a bajillion shirts for both teams. Mm-hmm. And then the teams that don't win, it's like, where do you think those shirts go? Where? Africa. 
So there's like as a donation, <laughs> it's cheaper to donate than it is to actually recycle, right? Right, right. So and it's a tax write-off for the company. I mean, so if you, you go to it. Ethiopia, there's people wearing like the Golden State Warriors T-shirts, <laughs> championship, like. <laughs> <laughs> I'm from wow. Toronto, so I got a special <laughs> kick out of that. <laughs> oh my god, that's that's eye opening. That's crazy. Yeah. Okay. So, um, so the goal was never to fix. The right. goal was to listen. Yeah, Americans' mentality is to go in and be like, "Okay, I'll tell you what we do here." Right. Right. Like, let me let me fix this for you guys. I mean, look at Tom's. Right. That okay. whole business model was like the one for one. So it's like you buy a shoe. And then we'll give a shoe away for free. Mm-hmm. But it's like, in theory, why wouldn't you just, instead of making those shoes in China, why wouldn't you just have African people make the shoes? Because mm-hmm. then they have a job and they can buy their own shoes. Yeah. Is there a problem with the Tom's model? Um, I think it's all situational. Uh. But I think what was amazing about the idea of that company is that they taught consumers that they can expect some act of goodwill to come from their investment. Right. And so that was a really radical idea. Mm-hmm. Um, but for the most part, when it comes to me and helping other countries, the idea is about creating jobs so you can empower people instead okay. of continuing to just give handouts. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think everyone, like you're saying, Tom's is a good thing. It's not maybe like, you know, it's not it as good. It was a good as, idea. It's a good idea. And it makes people open their eyes to like, yeah. what other good ideas are there? 2000%. Right, right. But your thing is how to empower people with work rather than like, what can I get for free? Yes. And also, you have to be malleable. Mm-hmm. You know, like my grandmother used to say, the road to hell is paved with good intentions, mm-hmm. you know? And it's like, so you can start something that's a one for one model. And then at, maybe at a certain point, you're like, okay, I want to pivot and actually change the way that we're doing it because this will be more helpful. Right. Just Learn. depends on what your intentions are. Right. You can learn and then adjust. Exactly. Over the years, I've been close to hundreds of businesses and probably thousands of entrepreneurs. And more often than not, the ability to learn and adjust is the differentiator in success or failure. The notion of trying to create jobs to empower people is something that has set Brother Veli's apart, and it should. I mean, how many brands embark on a journey with the goal of educating and teaching workers? Workers that have been traditionally marginalized through the glory of capitalism. The answer, not many brands. But within an ambitious and noble structure, there still needs to be a working business model. Otherwise, those jobs and opportunities might just disappear, and the newly learned skills might become useless. So it should be commended and acknowledged and used as a learning for anyone out there with similar ambitions that the road to building a business will not be paved with glamour and ease it will require the ability to adapt and learn. Otherwise, Aurora might be left with no business at all. And that wouldn't only affect her now, it would affect the people who rely on the infrastructure that she helped to create. That's always the double-edged sword with starting a business that is set out to do good. The intention to do good is awesome, but still, without a mindset that is trained for business, the amount of good that can be done, either in quantity or time, will likely be cut short. Do you remember the first run of shoes that you did there? Mm -hmm. How many pieces was that? Like 15 or maybe 25. (laughs) Yeah, it was very few. But with your tweak to it? Uh Uh-huh. Okay. Yeah. And then you brought them back to New York. And what was the response? 
People bought them at the Hester Street Fair. Did they? Did you already put a label in it or not? No, yet? I don't think so. You didn't have a brand name yet? No, no. Mm-hmm. Okay. So people bought them. They sold out, I assume. Yes. And then you were like, I got to go back to Africa and make more? Yeah, I used that money and I bought more. It was just flipping shoes. <laughs> <laughs> flipping shoes. Flipping shoes, okay. Yeah, that's what I did. Essentially, uh-huh. that's what we all are doing. You Who's know? we all? Like anyone who starts a business where they're selling things. Uh-huh, okay. Really from a grassroots standpoint, though. Was the owner of the workshop sort of surprised at what was happening? Um, I would say so. I think yeah. he was just like, I don't know who this American girl is, but like, yes. <laughs> yeah. Really? And I was like, I'm Canadian, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. And did you have to go back every time, or were you just emailing at that point? Emailing. There was no emailing in this job. You serious? Very little. It's like WhatsApp. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So there's no, they don't have a terminal like device. Like you have to, they're working only off of like a mobile device. Mainly. I mean, we brought a computer to Ethiopia and like a laptop because like, do you guys want this laptop? And one of the women was like, yes. Oh, wow. And so then it was like, we like loaded it with everything. Mm-hmm. But for the most part, yeah, WhatsApp. Okay. WhatsApp, Viber. There's another one. It's like all these different countries, they have different preferences sometimes. Right. Yeah. 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 Some of them are weird. Some of these you, apps. Was there a, a point where you had to expand beyond that single workshop? Yeah, very quickly. Okay, so tell me about when you had to go beyond well, that. Well, at one point I realized that I wanted to do sandals instead of just desert boots. Mm-hmm. And so I had gone to Kenya and they were making really amazing sandals there. And I was super inspired by that. And so I went back to South Africa and I was like, okay, guys, like, let's try doing something like this. And they were like, ugh. And so we did a bunch of samples and they were like, ugh, they hated it. Making hated it. it, yeah. They were like, this is not a nice sandal. <laughs> and I like they just were not inspired by it. Okay. And I was like, okay, hmm. Mm-hmm. And then I started thinking about like all these other businesses that were like making things in Africa and it wasn't really working. Mm-hmm. And I was like, well, the issue is is that I'm trying to fit a square peg into a round hole. Like this is not intuitive to them. Yeah. I'm like pushing a boulder up a hill. Right, right. So right. then I was like, I'm just gonna go to Kenya and make these sandals. Okay. Because this is part of their culture. It's what they're already doing. They are the ones that are doing it. Like, why would I? Right. So Fit that's... a circular peg into a circular hole. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> How did you find the Kenya facility? Who did I find it first? Um, I knew a girl who had, like, fallen in love with someone in Kenya. And I was like, <laughs> have you seen any sandals around? <laughs> Seriously. Really? Yeah. And then yes. she's like, oh, yeah, I saw somewhere. Like, <laughs> Yes. And Damn. I was like, can you go there and just, like, send me a picture? Uh-huh. And, like get some information. Wow. And I think she went to like a couple and then one of them, it was a woman that ran that workshop and I was like, I think it's time for like a woman. Uh And she was like a native Kenyan and so I went there. And then, oh, you went there? Yeah. Physically? Physically, by myself. Damn. How much of this job is like business management and also like Lara Croft? (laughs) I don't know, like more than I care to admit. Yeah, I've really? done a lot of like by myself trips and like not the most amazing situations. With now it's a little bit different. Yeah, like... strange drivers, like no cell service, like weirdness. Have you ever felt in danger at any point? Absolutely. Can you remark on any like anecdotes? Oh, yeah. There was a situation in Kenya because I started going to that workshop a lot. And for a while, politically, it was getting really crazy. And the UN was like, oh, you need to maybe not go there so much anymore. And um, (laughs) it got to the point where 
they at the workshop like didn't want me to go there because oh. we were getting like a lot of press and that sort of thing. And so people knew who I was in that community uh-huh. and they didn't want, you know, someone to like come capture me and all that jazz. So Holy I was, shit. Yeah. So the positive press was endangering both you and the factory. Yes, because they knew that someone could essentially like take me for ransom. Legit. Mm-hmm. I, I think most footwear brand owners and fashion owners don't have to worry about kidnapping and ransoms. True, <laughs> true. But they also have boring businesses. <laughs> right, right. So yeah, so when I, the last time, it was literally the last time that I went there, uh, the last two times, the same thing that basically happened. I had to fly there to where the workshop is on, on the coast mm-hmm. and then do a bunch of like work with them for a couple of hours and then fly out in a small plane to like the Maasai Mara and wait for a week for them to finish the samples and then fly back, look at everything. Because and then you couldn't fly stay out. there. Yeah. Damn. And the second last time I went there, I, I stayed, I stayed, and the last night that I was there, someone cut the electricity to where I was in the middle of the night. So that was it for me. I was like, not again. Wow. And they had like installed bars on the insides of the doors of my room. The inside? Yeah. Which is not conducive for escaping. <laughs> no, but it was like, they were like, well, they're not going to be able to get in at you. Ah. There's logic there. <laughs> right. Damn. And it was dark at night, so I didn't know the power went off. All that I heard was the f- overhead fan stop working. Oh, creepy. Creepy. Wow. And you're, why are you doing these alone, out of curiosity? I don't know. Who was supposed to come? <laughs> I was still a really tiny business at that time. No partners? No. Mm-mm. Do you have partners now? No. Okay. <laughs> I don't think anyone wants to put up with this. Would right, you? the risk and the, yeah. yeah. No, it's fine. Now it's a little bit different. We're like much more streamlined. I don't go to Africa as much. I figured out how to use WhatsApp really effectively and like <laughs> we're managing. We're okay, managing. but you're not like making goods in China now. No. Okay, you're still holding true to the, to yes. the intent. Okay. Yes, yeah. And how many like factories are you working with in Africa now? Okay, South Africa, Kenya, Morocco, Ethiopia, Burkina Faso, Mali, Nigeria, so seven in Africa. By the way, for you guys, she's not reading this off a piece of paper. This is off, <laughs> off the cuff. I have to do my fingers. I counted it on my fingers. And okay. then we also work a little bit in Haiti, also in Bali, and two different workshops in Mexico. Oh, okay. So we, you have expanded beyond Africa. Yes. Okay. We also make things in New York, and we mm-hmm. do a lot of our sample development in Italy now. Okay. Sample development in Italy to mm-hmm. show the indigenous people, how to exactly. make the stuff, right? Exactly. Gotcha. We do like a transfer of knowledge. Interesting, interesting business model. Mm-hmm. Um, what, did you have to change the mission statement when you decided to go beyond Africa? Or in your soul, it still felt like you were doing the mm-hmm. right thing? We had one season that was really awful where we were producing so much in Ethiopia and there was like a ton of political stuff that happened there and we lost like hundreds of thousands of dollars basically Uh and so at that point I knew it was gonna be a problem and I was like I just we have to get it done we have to get it done it has to just happen in Ethiopia because that's where it you know that's where we sampled it no one else knows how to make it and blah 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 and Mm -hmm. everyone was like ah Mm -hmm. and so it just like really was problematic and from that moment I was like okay we lost a lot of business yeah and I was like it the number one most important thing for me to do is to grow the business and the more we grow the business, the more jobs we're going to be able to create. Mm-hmm. So I need to make sure that multiple workshops know how to make things. I need to make sure that 
Italy is a backup plan for everything. So they have all of our patterns and our lasts and anything. So like if there's a disaster that strikes again and we aren't able to produce anything for an entire season, like business can't stop. Business can't because if right. the business stops, then all the jobs are gone. Right. So going to Italy as a backup plan might be against the ethos, but it's for the greater good of the entire business. Exactly. Yeah. But it was hard for me in the beginning because right. I was like, oh my gosh, like Italy, like that's not what it's about. And yeah. everyone's like, but what's your, what's your larger picture goal? Totally. Yeah. yeah and yeah. I needed like, listen, I learned everything that I know about shoes from people in Africa. Mm-hmm. So I also needed to bring in people who like had skills beyond what they already had. Too. Right. Have you ever calculated how many jobs you've created now? No. People what would your ask guess be? that. Hmm. I mean, I would say at least... 1,500, 2,000 different hands have touched a Brother Belly's shoe in Africa. That's dope. That's really, really incredible. Yeah. The notion that 1,500 to 2,000 people have touched a Brother Belly's shoe in Africa during the course of the last six years is utterly remarkable. And a big reason is because Aurora is the type of person who will wander down an alley in a foreign country just out of pure curiosity. That's how it all starts with her. But like Iron Mike Tyson used to say, everyone has a plan until they get punched in the face. And there's a responsibility to the health of a business that many creative entrepreneurs choose to avoid. That responsibility can take on many forms, but in Aurora's case, it's a backup plan to quickly pivot product development to Italy if there's an emergency in her production chain, even if that means slight deviation off the mission. Aurora's willingness to be transparent about this topic is honest and essential to the health of her business. It's also a vulnerable talking point in a time where call-out culture and virtue signaling is claiming new victims on a daily basis. So instead of looking at what could be a point of criticism, I want to flip the script on that. It's the sign of a smart business person. And the decision isn't coming from a board of directors, and it isn't the result of an annual stockholder meeting. It's the type of entrepreneurial intelligence and awareness that protects her business and these workers. And that's what's worth calling out. Because not many people actually have that plan ready for the moment when they get punched in the face. Interesting because all of that that we've just covered is sort of like how you make stuff, which is... Typically, for a startup brand, one of the more challenging things, how Mm -hmm. how and where do I get stuff made? Mm -hmm. But that was sort of like the DNA of your brand creation, right? Now I want to talk about you getting all these goods made. How the hell are you moving them? Mm -hmm. So are you still doing street fairs or... (laughs) Thankfully, no, because wholesale, like where are you going? I have to tell you, you have to start setting up for the Hester Street Fair at like 8 a.m. on a Sunday. (laughs) Yeah. So that wasn't sustainable. Uh Um, Now (laughs) we, yeah, we sell to like a number of stores all over the world. Netta Porte opening ceremony was actually my very first store, Mm -hmm. Umberto and Carol. Um, we're very supportive. Uh, Moda Operandi. And to be honest with you, 70% of our business is direct to consumer, which is amazing. That's great. I'm like very excited about that because mm-hmm. it used to be the other way around. I think a long time ago when I first started, a long time ago, six years, yeah. um, <laughs> everyone was always focused on wholesaling. Yeah. It was like, are you at Barney's? Are you at the Webster? Are you at wherever? Right. And that was like all that anyone Name cared about. Name dropping the Name stores. Name dropping yeah. the stores. Yep. And for me, 
I was always really obsessed with our direct consumer business. Mm-hmm. I don't know why. I guess I just wanted to know who was wearing things, <laughs> you know? And yeah. and it was easier to deal with and the margins were better. Uh-huh. And because, you know, a lot of the way that we make things, it's like using natural materials and all that. There's going to be color variations and yeah. like pattern variations. Right. And wholesale accounts are like, what do you mean? Uh-huh. Like they don't understand that. Right. The QC department at the wholesale is like, oh, this blue is off on this percent yeah, yeah. yeah. Like they're like, well, this cow print is not the same as the sample. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, well, cows aren't all the same. <laughs> the spots are different. <laughs> right. Seriously, that's a conversation I have every single season, even still with wholesale accounts. Wow. And I knew that like my customers would appreciate the fact that like their yeah. Yeah, their right. thing is going to look different than anyone else's. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that was much more fascinating to okay. me. Okay. And when you say direct, your e-commerce is the way, right? E-commerce, and we have a store in Brooklyn. Oh, cool. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, how does fulfillment look? I'm just, like, I get into the nerdy <laughs> shit of things, but, uh-huh. like, in the beginning, are you fulfilling these out of, like, your home, or did you get a warehouse when right I away? When I started, I used to do them out of my apartment. You had all these shoes in your apartment? Yes. What's the most amount of shoes that could fit in your apartment? <laughs> well, my apartment was 3,000 square feet at that time, so a lot sweet. of shoes. Okay, that's <laughs> A sweet. lot of shoes in Bed-Stuy. Uh-huh. Um, Hundreds. I don't yeah. know. It was really overwhelming. You have a facility now. Now we have it all at the store. So my store is like very large, and in the back is our office, uh-huh. and we have like a lot of shoes there. Like okay, thousands. so it's design studio, warehouse, and retail store. Uh-huh. Dope. I know. Everyone's very irritated by the fact that I still do my own fulfillment. Like all of my <laughs> business advisors are like, "This has to change," and I'm like, "I just want to see every shoe." <laughs> I'm like very, you know. What happens when a customer wants to return something? They return it to the store? It's their prerogative. Yeah, they return it to the store in the mail. Uh However, people normally return things. I don't know. Usually there's like an RA number and like, you know, you get a... We probably have that. Okay. I just don't like those sorts of details. How many people are on your team now? Four. (laughs) Yeah. I like how, like, I thought you were going to say like 40. No, I know. Everyone thinks that. Four people. four, Four women. So it's equivalent to like 40 people. Four women <laughs> are running the retail store, the office, the back office, uh-huh. and the warehouse, and the shipping, and the fulfillment, and sales, and everything? Yeah. What? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I used to be five. I'm hiring. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Um, yeah. That's amazing. Congrats. We're really hardcore. Yeah. And we all know everything that's going on. You know? I bet there's a lot of WhatsApping, like <laughs> group you know WhatsApp what? channels. It's really funny because I get fatigued from WhatsApp, so it's like... And I get fatigued from email, so mm-hmm. it's like phone calls. Okay. Like people know if you want to ask me something, you have to pick up the phone. Uh-huh. Use the numbers and then say hello. Okay. That's yeah. your most preferred way of Absolutely, 2,000%. Wow. I hate email. How about texting? It's okay, but... <laughs> Texting's number two. I mean, if you look at my phone, I have like over 400 unread text messages. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. That's. I'm not a zero inbox, a zero text message person. Oh, okay. Uh, you mentioned that you only employ women is that an accident or no, on purpose i don't only employ women but you have only it just so employees. happens that they, uh, <laughs> have they you are. ever employed a man uh-huh <laughs> at least twice <laughs> i love it okay at least twice but it's it's not your prerogative to do that i don't know i don't uh, to be honest it i don't really think about it so okay. much like the other day someone was like it's really interesting that the photographer that you use to shoot everything is a white man and I was like, oh, yeah, I guess it is. 
but I'm not going to change that. I mean, that's right. a photographer that I happen to love working with. Uh huh. You know, right? You weren't like, wait, this is too much empowerment for the white male. So let me no. not hire him. Yeah, right. like if there was someone amazing that like walked into the door and was like, oh, I want to be your sales director, and he was like a white dude, I'd be like, cool. Mm. Okay. If he was the right person for the job. Okay. But I mean, also, you know. I don't know. I'm like a very particular person to work with. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But a lot of my business advisors are men. Okay. Some are women. Um, I want to ask you the other side of that question now. Mm -hmm. Have you faced being, people aren't watching this, Mm -hmm. they're listening, but you're a woman, a person of color, minority, Mm -hmm. Canadian. No, Mm -hmm. I'm just kidding. (laughs) Three strikes. (laughs) Um, But have you faced challenges in trying to get, whether it's like business, like loans or like money or sales or anything like that? Like, has that ever been an issue? Yeah, I mean, I'm sure. It's really tough because like when you are a woman of color and you're working in this space, you don't even necessarily know sometimes when you are like... when there's biased against you. Yeah, but I've definitely like looked at contracts that I've gotten and talked to some of my guy friends who are like in similar situations and their contracts were way better. Mm. And I was like, wow. (laughs) Right. That's shocking. Wow. It's like the proof is in the pudding. Right. You know? Um, so your male advisors are like spies for like how it should be almost like. 2,000%. <laughs> I mean, 2,000%. We also did this other like collaboration that hasn't come out yet. It'll probably come out next year or something. But I was like talking to, my, I have a manager. I was talking to her about it the other day. And I was like, I know for a fact that this other male designer who did the collaboration before mm-hmm. probably got paid more mm-hmm. than I am getting paid. Mm-hmm. And she was just like silent. And I was like, I know he is at the same management agency. I just want you to tell me. And she was like, he definitely got more. And I was like, exactly. Right. Exactly. <laughs> she was Her silence said it all, basically. Oh, yeah. <laughs> she didn't want to tell me. I mean, that's like bombs dropping. Yeah. But you're yeah. used to it at this point. Mm. What, what does that do to you? Does that mm. like inspire you or depress you? <laughs> Neither. Neither. Really? I'm pretty ambivalent about it. Yeah. Huh. I think it's a it's a it's unfortunate. It's just the reality of the situation right. and you just have to recognize, you know, how people value you at some point and mm-hmm. then you make a note of it and you're like, "Okay, I'm not going to mess with that ever again." Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know. And ultimately these companies are like weeding themselves out. And it's like, you know, we're going into like an election year. Like people need the vote of black women. People mm-hmm. need black women's money. Mm-hmm. And that's what really moves the needle, and for better right. or for worse. Right. In an ideal world, we all want positive change to happen just because of the good it does. It's positive, so let's do it, right? Well, it's not always so simple. I say here for better or for worse because different people have different motives. And in order for monumental change to happen, you need all the people to come along for the ride. Aurora is smart enough to understand this. Unfortunately, some people are more motivated by money than by the greater good. So she knows how to play that card when necessary. And you really need some ice in your veins to operate like this. As the awareness around mental health is being raised and more openly discussed, I think one of the areas where it has shined a light in a dark corner relates specifically to entrepreneurs. So it's great to hear that Aurora is ambivalent about the outside chatter. I've long believed that our self-worth needs to originate from within. Because whether the public response to your creative output is good or bad, 
One of the most important things that we can do for ourselves as creatives is to maintain our inner peace. And that will prove to be the most valuable asset in any great business. Uh, how many shoes are you producing now on like an annual basis? Yeah, a few thousand, I would imagine. Yeah. Yeah. That's amazing. And what's the turnaround time on like making shoes in Africa? <laughs> really depends because every single workshop is different. Uh-huh. Kenya, it's like, whew, long time. But a lot of the stuff <laughs> that we do there. Long is meaning like 18 months? Ew, no. Okay. That's crazy. Um, probably like three. That's long to me. That's quick to me for someone who makes shoes in China like, and ships them on a boat and yeah, stuff. Yeah, well, I can't mess with the boat. Okay, so you're air freighting in yeah. shoes. Okay, all right. Yeah. Three months is awesome. But and we also do four collections a year. Uh-huh. It's like very, you know, like there's feathers and like, I There's don't know, what? Feathers. Feathers? Yeah. In your, You've in never your... seen my shoes before, John? I have, but I don't... <laughs> yeah, there's feathers. There's okay. like, you know, it's like very fanciful, whimsical, like super feminine, like yeah, yeah, stuff. Yeah. So, and I always am getting new ideas. And when I get new ideas, I want to see it right now. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So the, even the fashion calendar to me is like problematic because I just like want everything to happen right now. Yeah. yeah. So I'm like really into quick turnaround time. Like even this morning, I like, you know, came up with the design, had my assistant sketch it and then sent a production order. Right. And then like talked to the Webster about getting it in there in September having a party <laughs> seriously that, that's what i did right before i came in here really yes so i you walked went, here from you the went webster from concept yes. to the launch event yes in your head in yes. one day yes yes that's awesome the event is september 6th <laughs> <laughs> seriously but the boots shoes are gonna be made, great but the shoes no they haven't even been sampled you yet. haven't even seen them yet no but i've seen them in my mind jeff that's mind-boggling to me well you have to be nimble wow i'm impressed Really? I'm highly impressed. I would never plan a launch event until I saw the thing. No, no, I have faith. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) But I get it. You know, everyone's very, like, high stress. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I'm very calculated and stuff, I guess. Yeah, I'm very chill. (laughs) To a degree. Mm -hmm. I'm all chill until something goes wrong and then it's like, ah. Uh Wow, that's impressive. Um, What is your biggest pain point right now in the business? Like, if you had a magic wand, what would be the, the thing that you would have rectified or, like, remedied right away? <laughs> um, probably everyone's listening, like, uh, she needs a business partner. Maybe that. Maybe what that. do you need a business partner for? Well, because I do things like that. Okay. You know, I'm, like, very, but like, yes. maybe that's yes, the beauty of it. It is the beauty of it. Yeah. But it would be good to have someone uh, who is a little bit more methodical mm-hmm. and a little bit less, like, I'm very... Uh, like knee jerk, like uh-huh. fly by the seat of your pants, right. like, which I think is great and yes. wonderful and amazing, but some of it could be streamlined a bit yeah. better. But the right partner will allow a certain amount of chaos to occur because that's, I think, where the magic happens. Right. Right. Yeah. If and they came in and were like, yeah, you want to do that design? Fill out this request form and you'd be like. Right. No, 2,000%. <laughs> yeah, like fuck that shit. Right. Yeah. And finding a partner. Listen, like I've met with so many people over the years that mm-hmm. are like, I want to do this with you. But it's like you have, for me, this is also my baby. Yeah. And it's like when you bring in a partner, Mm -hmm. that's like getting married. Like it's very serious. Yes. So for me, it's like, you know. Using that analogy, how has the dating process in your 
in your marriage and tedious, going. Tedious, yeah. tedious, tedious. Yeah, because everyone always has these different ideas for your business. Mm-hmm. You similar, because sim- I have partners, so mm-hmm. I've gone through the dating process. And right. similar to that, sometimes you go on like a lot of dates with people right. to only find out that they're not the one. And so that's disheartening too. And you're like, great, I got to start all over again, you know? Right. My default position is you're not the one. <laughs> But you're going to have a couple chances to maybe show me that you could potentially be viable. Are we still talking about partners or now talking about boyfriend and girlfriend? Everything. In all categories. Are we talking real life? all categories. All of it? Okay. You're not the one until you prove me opposite, right? right. That's my default position. Okay. You're definitely not the one. (laughs) Um, So I assume you're looking for someone to help with like operations and stuff like that? Yeah. Okay. How long have you been searching for? I wouldn't say that I'm searching. Uh-huh. I'd say that I'm open to hearing. Got you. It's not like a need, like you need it no. this week or anything. Okay. No. And how old is the brand? Six. Six years old. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Where do you want to go next though? I definitely want to open more stores. I want to open a store in LA next year. Okay. So I've been looking at store spaces out there. Uh-huh. We have a lot of, we do a lot of business online in LA and I just, I love LA personally as mm-hmm. well. And I think that the shoes are also really conducive to that, um, yep. you know, weather. Mm-hmm. So I think that would be great. Okay, but I want to open a bunch of stores. I want to open a store in Paris. You know, mm-hmm. I love Paris. Uh, are you trying to minimize wholesale down to zero? No. Okay. I think there's some wholesale accounts that are really great. It's just about having right partners and looking at every single wholesale account and saying, okay, what are your strengths and how can we play to that? Yeah. You know, what can we do together that's going to make it a great partnership? It's like, you know, when you have friends and you have like that one friend that you always go to the movies with because they are like really good at picking out good movies. You have another friend that you like go for great wine with because Mm -hmm. they like love orange wine or whatever, you know? Yeah. And so it's doing that with your wholesale retail stores. Mm -hmm. You hear a lot in the news about like the death of wholesale retail and, you know, you got to go e-com. What are, in your mind, in your experience, pros and cons of working with other retailers? I mean, the cons are the margins for sure. Okay, you lose money. That's <laughs> yeah, a big con. Like that's a big con, and they, <laughs> you know, they're very particular. They all have, they have their own needs, mm-hmm. and sometimes from a design standpoint, like that's not interesting to me. Yeah, you know that some like we've had people like want to do these like crazy exclusives, and I'm like, whoa, like that's right. You know, can you do this in yellow or like right, right, yeah. Okay, so answering their needs, money being lost. Um, how about like. Oh, you got to chase payment. That's annoying too, right? Uh huh. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> what are the pros? Uh, the pros are money. You know, if you're big, someone who's big, like, like really yeah. trying to grow like a huge volume business, right. Then that can be one way. Yep. Um, the con to that, though, I would say too, is that stores these days really rely on the brand to do the sell through for them. Right. You have to promote it to get people to go right. into the store. Right. When you actually want to promote to go to your website. Right. So that's like a little bit of, you know, yeah. conflict of interest there. Right, right, right. Um, which is why I think that doing that partnership thing properly is really important. Mm-hmm. Um, the pro, I mean, I guess like more like their customers discovering your brand. Yeah. If they don't already know about it. Yeah. Yep. It's almost nowadays more of a marketing initiative than an actual sales initiative, right? Yeah, I suppose. Yeah. But Especially like when you start choosing stores that like carry weight behind them and like like we were saying earlier it's kind of like the name drop of like i'm in store a b c and d that immediately puts your brand into an echelon right right if you're a brand that feels like you need that and you're not i don't feel like i need that kind of validation no okay but i'm <laughs> i also like march to the beat of my own drum mm-hmm. to a degree 
Yeah, yeah. And like when I won the fashion fund, I did something called the CFDA Vogue Fashion Fund a number of years ago, which was amazing. And um, when I won the fashion fund, my mom, I talked to her on the phone and I was like, do you remember that thing I was doing? And she was like, yeah, the competition thing. And I was like, yeah. And she was like, what happened? And I was like, I won. And she was like, oh. And she was like, well, I hope that you no longer feel like you need validation for your work. And I was like, hmm, yeah, valid. <laughs> You know? big, yeah. Yeah. Wow. But the fashion fund is amazing. You know, it was super helpful. And like for any emerging designer, I would absolutely recommend doing it. Uh-huh. You know? Did your mom understand like from the beginning what you were trying to do? Yes. Okay. Because she's very into like traditional, cultural, anything. What does she do? She's an architect. Oh, dope. Yeah. Okay. But she always, she would be like, these are my clogs. They're from Denmark. They were carved with this sort of wood, which is like native to there. And mm-hmm. they're the best at making clogs. Like, she was always talking to me from that space about fashion. Yeah. Did you ever pontificate one day mm-hmm. when Brother Valley's is a billion dollar organization mm-hmm. and you have to make hundreds of thousands of units, right? Mm-hmm. What that... This is all sounding like a nightmare already, but go on. Okay, mm-hmm. but... It, it, maybe that is a nightmare. Is that yeah. a nightmare for you? Yes. You don't want to be like a billion dollar organization. No. <laughs> I, no. When I was saying that, you should see the look on your face. You're like, oh God, no, what? So tell right. me, what is the dream? What, well, not, but that's a thing. Like we're that make, all told that we right. need to, you know, have a billion dollar business to be successful. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't stop. Like the headaches that you have at a billion dollars are really intense. And there's no way, if I'm selling a billion dollars worth of shoes, that's sweatshops. You Mm -hmm. can't do a billion dollars of apparel without it being on the backs of other people. Mm -hmm. Period. So you're trying to create a, just a sustainable and not in the environmental sense, a, a financially sustainable I don't think that Brother Valley's needs to ever be bigger than like $150 million. Okay. A billion dollars is too big. Okay. So at 150 million. Uh-huh. Yes, Jeff. Yes. <laughs> are you just changing the entire economic landscape of Africa? No. No, it's it's still not doing enough. No, I don't think so. <laughs> There's so many people there. Have you seen how big that continent yes, is? Yes, it is. It's very big. Yeah yeah. yeah, yeah. Right. But that but it will make a big impact at that point. Huge impact, yeah. Yeah. And is that is that your goal? Yes, that's my goal. Okay. You hit the nail on the head. We got there. We got there. Awesome. And it's only been 38 minutes. There's got to be a partner out there listening that wants to get involved in that. I lost them all and I didn't want a billion dollar business. Yes. No, but you lost the bad ones. That that was a good like vetting process. Like, wait, not a billion? No, get out of here. I bet a lot of the partners that you potentially speak to were talking about like, how do we get to of course, of course, and everyone wants to know, like, you know, what's your exit strategy and all of that. And I, you know, I definitely have thought about those things. I have ideas about those things, and and it's just, you know, we're six years old. Mm-hmm. I don't think that we will even be fully blossomed until you're ten. Mm-hmm. And it's oh, wow, yeah, it's 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 a it's a marathon. It's not a sprint, mm. you know. And even with the shoes, like, I work really hard to make sure that like these are shoes that are all still going to be like wearable and great in five years, six years, seven yeah. years. That's dope that you said you're in the sixth year, but you've only just begun. And mm-hmm. your 10 years is when you'll figure shit out. Yeah. Do you find that most people of your generation have much less patience when it comes to stuff like that? Like they want to be like retired in three years. They want to be done. We, my generation, it's not our generation. No, I I'm think 35. I'm, so. Okay. <laughs> okay. 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 Fine. I thought you were a lot younger, actually. 
Yeah, no, I'm actually 35. Um, I'm but, 44. Okay, kind of same. Yeah, almost same. Um, but I, <laughs> but okay, I, yeah, the, the younger generation. No one wants to work. It doesn't matter. How we're finished. We're finished yeah. here. That was. The, we're just. We're done. Those are you the know? words. No one wants to work. It's right. a lot. Yeah. It's a lot. Mm-hmm. Everyone always sees what you gain. They do not see what you've given up. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. they they haven't seen the sacrifices. That's right. not. People aren't posting the sacrifices on Instagram. Mm-hmm. You know, so it's a lot. Truer words have never been spoken. They always see what you've gained. They never see what you've given up. In the age of social media, I actually can't think of a better phrase to summarize the truth about being an entrepreneur. It's sort of uncanny to hear it and think about our journeys and how that journey relates to you guys listening who might have visions of starting your own business. When you think about the solo trips that Aurora described, and when you imagine how much each member of her team is giving to this company, pause to consider the possibility of her being kidnapped or ransomed to bring these products to market. You have no choice but to respect those sacrifices. They're tremendous, but that's not what makes it on the Instagram because it isn't glamorous. There honestly isn't much about building a business that is. You have to do it because you need to do it. It's what I mean when I say, quote unquote, sustainable. Nobody can sustain the effort if it isn't backed by utter blind passion. If you take anything away from this interview and this show over the last seven seasons, it's that nothing comes easy. And many times, it's actually harder than you think. Businesses evolve on the daily. Needs will arise that you would have never have expected. And nobody, save for a few, will ever truly get what you've sacrificed. So once you grasp all of that, you can begin to understand the magnitude of rewards that comes with entrepreneurship. But don't fool yourself because it all comes with a price. It's up to you to decide if it's a price that you're willing to pay. I think that 98% of people are not cut out for the sacrifices that it takes to make in order to have a successful business. Wow. And to last that 10-year mark, like, or six-year mark, whatever, like... Absolutely. Yeah. Do you think that's a problem that you're seeing with the younger generation, that, like, less patience, more overnight success stories, like, they want the overnight success, no sacrifice? Yeah, or, I think that it's, it is their problem, yes. <laughs> it's their problem. Yeah. You know, yeah, they all... Because it's the thing, is like, everyone wants to have their own, like, you know, acclaim or whatever, mm-hmm. but they don't... No one... We don't talk so much about like all of the struggles that go into that, mm-hmm. you know. And it's like, yeah, I'm a designer, but mainly I'm an entrepreneur. Yeah, I spend like maybe ten percent of my time designing. At and what's best. the other ninety? Like managing, putting out Shoveling fires. Shit. Yeah, like all those other things. Right. Being in cars. <laughs> Being in cars. Yeah. Yeah. Just like schlepping from one place to another right right you know people don't yeah you don't instagram that part no don't. <laughs> it's horrifying and boring right. it works really dirty so no one wants to see that yeah 
How do you balance like the social media branding marketing side of things with the actual work that needs to get done? Does, yeah. Do you compartmentalize that into one bucket or you like separate the two? Uh, no, it's all the same. It's Instagram the same. has recently become the largest driver of traffic to our website, surpassing okay. Google. So, so that's there's a big a, deal. There, the more you personally post... And you have a personal account and a business account. Mm-hmm. Do you find that the more you post, the more visible you are, the better sales are? Mm, I don't know if it's necessarily about more. There's certain types of content mm-hmm. that are really helpful in terms of selling things. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So if I go to Africa and like show a whole like behind the scenes thing, people really like seeing that. Yeah. And so it ingratiates them to the brand a little bit more, mm-hmm. for sure. Right. Um, I would say that my followers and the brand followers are definitely a little bit different, you know? Um, How so? I wanna, I'm interested to know hmm. why. Well, I think a lot of my followers are like really into like fashion and skincare. And like also I'm really political. So there's a huge like percentage of like my personal followers that just came from like politics and activism space. Okay. Um, and we do a little bit of that at Brother Bellies, but like not as much, mm-hmm. you know? So there's that separation for sure. Um, but what's great is that on mine, you actually see the product in real life. You know, mm-hmm. you actually like see the lifestyle part of it yeah. versus the brand is just like hardcore product. Right, right. But we shoot it all on film, which <laughs> I don't know why I do that, but everything yeah. is like film. Like 90% of what we post on Instagram on the company page, I shoot on a disposable camera. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. Oh, cool. Um, right now is the whole line, um, is it male, female? Is it just it's like shoes? like 95% women. Okay. But when I first started, when it was just the Vellies, it was like 70% men. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. What made you switch over? Just happened naturally. And then I ha- guess heels did it. Yeah. <laughs> Have you extended into other categories? Uh, bags. Okay. And the bags are made where? Uh, all over the place. Kenya, some in New York, and Bali. We do a lot of bags in Bali. Okay, cool. Why, uh, out of curiosity, why make in New York? What was, that's the one if I was looking as an outsider... It's the one the only, that seems weird. Yeah. The only well, commonality is that it's an island. <laughs> I know. Basically, yeah. Well, we're here. Okay. So we make things ourselves, okay. also in the studio, like my assistant. Mm-hmm. Um, but it started during the fashion fund when, when Diane von Furstenberg was like, you need to be making bags. And I was like, okay. And everyone just stared <laughs> at me and it was like, okay, I guess I'm making bags. So I had to like whip it up really fast. Uh-huh. And I like met this man who just like worked for himself and he'd been making bags forever and like he's just a super sweet and so he makes yeah wow and so he makes some bags for me now he moved to new jersey wow but he's like so sweet and he like supports his whole family and and so i'm like i always want some of the bags to be made by him out of curiosity have you had a case where you're using a factory you're trying to give them work and business Mm -hmm. but it still went under have you had any casualties? Mm, no, but we've definitely had uh, workshops we've had to pull out of. Mm-hmm, because it just couldn't be, like it you couldn't, couldn't salvage it. It couldn't work. Yeah. I didn't uh, trust certain things, you know? Like there's, and things change too. Yeah. Like um, even like in uh, Namibia, for example, like they have issues with the minimum wage. So it's like, if someone has a workshop there and they're promising me that people are getting paid a certain amount of money, but I have like any kind of s- suspicion that mm-hmm. that's not what's happening, mm-hmm. then that's a problem. Right. 
That must be gut wrenching for you to like have to pull out of a factory because that's like your whole mission. Gut wrenching. Yeah. For sure. There's all sorts of things. Like, look, it's just, it's the same with everyone. It's like you start working with certain partners. Sometimes things work out, sometimes things don't work out. Mm -hmm. People, things happen. Like, I've had people get sick before. Like, you know, I've had people get like really crazy, like just anything. You know, mm-hmm. and uh, it's tough because also as the business has grown too, it's meant like more money for everyone, and not everyone can handle more money. Wow, never thought of that problem. Yeah, are you talking about more the people in Africa or people in New York? People in Africa. So well, in New you... York, of course. Yeah. <laughs> I know. I was like, I've never heard of that from a New Yorker. Yeah. But oh, I never thought of that problem. So when you start giving them more business and more money. They don't know how to handle that. They've never had that kind of money. Not across the board, but we've had situations like that for sure. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Okay. So now that you're six years in going into seven, mm-hmm. um, what advice would you give yourself starting out? Like, what did you learn in these six or seven years that if you could go in a time machine and go back to year one, Brother Valleys, what would you tell yourself? Show every single contract to your lawyer, no matter what. Oh, you got some bad contracts under your belt? Just one. Can you talk about it? That like haunts me. Can you talk about it? Talk about it. I mean, it was just this, I already hinted at it before. It was just this contract that I signed that like, you know, lots of people have signed this contract, but I just got a really crappy deal. And now I have to like get myself out of it. No, but I'm trying to remember if I've done any bad collaborations. No, I haven't done any bad collaborations, but. Wait, did you touch on it before? I did. Which one was it? You're going to have to re-roll the tape. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Wait, which one? Which contract? The one where I was saying that like a, one of my male colleagues yeah. got a better deal than me. Okay, got it. That one. Yeah. But oh, so you signed it already before you asked the yeah. the person. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay. Yeah. Now I have to work my way out of it somehow. Okay. That's a shame. It happens. Okay. It happens. But it was the one contract that I never showed my lawyer. Oh. So you have lawyers, but you didn't show yes, him that I one. Have a fantastic lawyer. I didn't show him that one. Because like you wanted to save that constant, like, like save a little bit of money there. I, it wasn't even that. I was like, I was like, it's fine. You know, my accountant <laughs> looked it over. It's fine. Right. My Not mom looked fine. at it. <laughs> yeah. No. Okay, so lesson learned: so have lawyers good. read tra- contracts. Yeah. Yeah. Anything else? One Any other one. bits of advice that you would um, give yourself? Just go with your gut. Like I would just say, go with your gut because Mm. so, like, so many times people were like, "No, do this. No, do this. No, do this." You know, and it's like you have to just do what you think works for you because ultimately, it's your business. You're the one that's going to have to put your blood, sweat, tears, and whole life into it. So you need to make sure that you're making. Like people are like, "Oh, why did you decide to be sustainable?" And I was like, "Oh, I I didn't decide to be sustainable. I just actively made the choices that felt best for me at at each turn." Mm. That's it. And that's why it's like, you know, I use fur. People are like, oh my God, I can't believe you use fur. And I'm like, why? Because to me, as someone who was also vegan for 10 years, fur is a sustainable animal byproduct. So of course I use it. What am I going to use? Fake fur? That's plastic. The carbon footprint is horrible. Wow. I, ne- you're, like, I never thought of it that way. Right. Because it's like, people are just like, don't use fur. Fur is bad. And I'm like, what part is bad? Uh-huh. If I'm using like rabbit fur that we're getting in Kenya that's a place where they're like farming rabbits and have for many generations and the whole community eats those rabbits and they're no longer throwing out the fur but they're selling it to me. Mm-hmm. So for the very first time they're getting a whole second stream of income into that village that they weren't previously getting because I'm making rabbit fur stuff. Why is that bad? 
because you are sitting like in Brooklyn eating an acai bowl telling me it's bad. <laughs> right. Wow. That's crazy. And you're a vegan and you were vegan. Yes, for 10 years. Wow. This like twists my mind all the ethics that are involved in it. Right. Right. And we just have to all start thinking about these things now. But mm-hmm. that's why I'm saying my advice to myself when I'm younger would be just go with your gut. Mm-hmm. Think things through yourself. Don't listen to other people. Yeah, because you can hear all this shit and like just get yourself like confused about what you actually want to do. Yeah, you have to really think about it. You know how right. many people have been like, don't use fur? Mm-hmm. And I'm like, but what? <laughs> like what? Even if I use like pleather, like how are they going to recycle that in uh-huh. Kenya? What are we going to do with all these like plastic offcuts? Right. They're going to go right. in, a, in a hole. Right. But then it's like supposed to be helpful. Like mm-hmm. that's supposed to be helpful, fur free. Like you know, what that's supposed to be a good thing for the world. Right. So confusing. Yeah. So it's just not black and white. Right. Everything is gray. That's why you're saying if you just go with your gut, you'll never be wrong because at least exactly you answer to yourself. Totally. Nice. All right. Well, thank you for joining us. Of that was course, awesome. my absolute pleasure. Yeah. Thanks for having me, Jeff. All right. Bye. Bye. Hey, thank you for listening to this delightful episode with the founder and creative director of Brother Valley's Aurora James. As always, you can find out more about the show and listen to other episodes at hypebeast.com slash radio. You can subscribe to us wherever you get podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you listen. I personally use Anchor FM. We are now at almost 500 reviews with a 4.8 rating on Apple Podcasts. So keep shouting us out, telling us what you think of the show. I truly, truly appreciate it. Also, do me another solid and tell just one friend about this episode. Someone you know whose dream it is to make positive change in their business. I have a feeling that they're going to thank you for this. We occasionally answer listener questions on the show. So if you have a question, shoot it over to me on Twitter. I'm at Jeff Staple. The Business of Hype is created in collaboration with Bright Young Things. You can check out their work at byt.nyc. Our director is Daniel Nevetta. Our audio engineer is David Rogers Berry. Our audio interludes are composed by Gabe Darling. Our associate producers are Sydney Pacumpra and Christina Hong. This episode was recorded on location at the Staple headquarters in New York City. I'm Jeff Staple, and you've been listening to The Business of Hype on Hype Beast Radio. Thank you.